I don't even think we need to think about education as like a formal path into data. And so it really is a partnership through and through, not just understanding the business problem that you're trying to solve, but also how are we gonna use this data and how do we need to be able to slice and dice it? The easiest way to start is to just take the analysis you're doing and turn it on its side a little bit. Welcome to The Right Track, a podcast for people building data cultures. We will hear from leaders in engineering, product, and data as they share their frustrating and inspiring stories on building the best products for their customers by mastering outcome-driven development, self-serve analytics, and great data cultures. I am Stefania Olafsdottir, CEO and co-founder of AVO, the analytics governance platform, changing how developers, product managers, and data scientists collaborate to plan, track, and govern their product analytics. Keep the conversation going with us in the Right Track community. Join us on the therighttrack.avo.app. In this episode, I spoke with Emily Sherio. Emily was GitLab's first data analyst, and she eventually became chief of staff to Sid Sibrandi, GitLab's CEO. She then joined Netlify as director of data and business intelligence and built an incredibly inspiring data culture there, which we've heard about in a previous episode when I interviewed Lori Voss from Netlify's data team. She is now a data strategist in residence at Amplify Partners, helping very lucky companies build out their data strategy, data team, and data culture. Emily was member number 50 in DPT's Slack community back in 2016, and she's an admin in the locally optimistic Slack community. These are two valuable data communities which I recommend joining, and her strong involvement and contribution there are a testament to her dedication to the wider data community. She has shared tons of valuable insights and opinions through talks and articles. And in this episode, we talked about one of my favorites, her Down with Data Science talk at DBT's Coalesce in December 21, where she argued for why data science isn't a helpful reference to a role for data professionals, neither for clarifying what they do in their job or as a title they can build a career path through. So it's a great pleasure to have Emily on the right track. We covered a lot of ground with a strong theme around data cultures. I loved and related to her thesis that data teams are evolving away from being quote-unquote IT and number fetchers to being a strategic part of the organization. But accomplishing that takes work and she shared actionable advice on how to get your data team to that strategic partner level including how she introduced so-called insights time at Netlify, where every data team member would carve out time for proactive data research. A repeated theme in our conversation was the importance of relationship building and identifying partners across the organization when building a data team, and also when building your individual data role. Organizational data trust and data quality also depends on relationship building on bringing data consumers and data producers closer together. In her words, relationships first, numbers second. Listen in for Emily's thoughts on strategy and tactics for making your data team a strategic part of your organization. And enjoy the ride as she sheds a light on the challenges and joys of being a data professional. 
As she put it, data is hard, but so fun. Hello, Emily, and welcome to The Right Track. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. I am incredibly excited about this conversation. Uh, You're a legend, obviously. Uh, Love watching your talks and reading your content. And I've loved so much of the stuff that um, you've built in, in data cultures. So it's an honor to have you here. Could you kick us off by telling us who you are, what you do, and how you got there? Yeah, super happy to. My name is Emily Sherio. I'm currently a data strategist in residence at Amplify Partners, a, a early stage VC firm focused on technical founders. I was previously a director of data at Netlify. And prior to that, I was the first data analyst at GitLab, watched the company grow from 250 to over 1,300 people, spent a year as interim chief of staff to the CEO. Uh, really got to do the hypergrowth thing there, which was special. Uh, outside of, of data, I am a wife and a mom, and I live in Columbus, Georgia, with my husband, my son, and our dog, Bo. Awesome. Love that. Um, will we get to hear Bo in this interview? Probably not. Probably not. He's he's pretty well-behaved. He is my my office coworker full time. <laughs> awesome, awesome. That's a great coworker. Um, what was that transition? I'm curious. Like going from the, I mean, because definitely when you are a good analyst, data scientist, whatever we call it, it's often because you have a really strong business mindset as well. I'm curious. Like, how did that transition into chief of staff happen? Well, I was at GitLab. I had been there for over a year at that point. And because of my role on the data team, I had gotten a lot of exposure to the CEO, Sid Sabrandi, pretty directly. I really enjoyed working with him. And he decided he wanted to hire a chief of staff. He had a certain profile of years of experience and that he was looking for. And I reached out, had a lot of the GitLab contacts and said... I'm very interested in this role. And he said, you're great. I think you're great, but you're not kind of the experience level I'm looking for. I'm looking for a more senior candidate. And I said, yeah, but I could start now while you hire a more senior candidate. <laughs> and so he brought me in. Solid. Yeah, he brought me in in this like interim role. And it took nine months to hire the chief of staff. So we really had to figure out what the role was and what the profile was and and how we were going to find them. And in the end, GitLab hired an incredible chief of staff in Stella Therese. I loved working for and with her. I learned a ton from her. But the really interesting thing about that role is I got to go from thing in the business to thing in the business, each problem, basically firefighting with my data hammer, right? Where the skill set that I had was this data superpower where I could sit in a call and a question would come up and I would have the answer two minutes later in a way that was very different from other folks in the business who had to go ask the data team. And what the, the real underlying problem there is that that data team was in a service model. Everything was a question for the data team as opposed to people being empowered with the data that they needed. And when operating in that kind of environment, when I just had the data or could get it myself, it became this superpower that let me jump into any part of the business. 
I learned a ton in that role. And I think it made me a much better data professional because of my time not working in data. Yeah, exactly. And maybe sparked a lot of the culture that you eventually built then at Natlify, I would assume. I think what I saw was this idea that the service org doesn't scale. And if you're going to have a data team where people are just going to be asking you questions, well, then as you add more heads to the business, your data team needs to grow exponentially, right? Because the number of questions coming into that team will grow exponentially. And nobody wants that, right? Nobody wants to give the data team an exponential number of headcounts, especially where it's so hard to quantify the impact of the data team. And so when I went into Netlify, a huge part of what I did was how do we turn this data team into a proactive strategic asset to the business instead of a reactive service org? And I think we were pretty effective at that. What a journey. Um, And this is just, uh, I'm, I'm sure you get this a lot as well. You know, people reach out to me all the time both about like, you know, when they're headhunting for data scientists or, or, or for data roles and they don't know exactly what profile they're looking for. And on one hand, they're just looking for like, do you know someone? And on the other hand, they're looking for what is the recipe of a, you know, of a LinkedIn profile or a background that I should be looking for. And I think, you know, one of the most challenging things about that is like, it's often just you know, they don't necessarily have a lot of experience if you want them to come in and be the first data person. Because, you know, often the the people that have a lot of data experience, they just are burnt out from data and they don't want to be the first data person again. And so you're sort of maybe looking for some hungry people, basically, and like those like data journalist roles. I think it's super interesting that you went and became chief of staff and, you know, I wonder what happened first. Your skills for that role made you a good data analyst, which made you a, an acceptable candidate to chief of staff versus um, like all of the incredible skills you acquired as chief of staff and that then made you an incredible data leader. I think I'm a process thinker. And when you come to it from that, that's part of why I was good at data was that so much of data, especially in those earlier stages of an organization, is understanding how data flows through the organization. And that's a reflection of the processes that are creating that data, right? So if we think about Salesforce, for example, the customer journey that is mapped in Salesforce creates a bunch of data that we see in our data warehouse and uh, coming from that process piece into understanding the data flows made me a better data analyst. And I think then having understood so many of the processes in the business and having this like wide, wide view of the company through these processes and data flows made me an effective interim chief of staff. Yeah, this is super interesting. There are so many things to unpack just in that intro. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll touch on a lot of them later in the conversation, especially around building the data culture and the proactive data team versus the service org, I guess. But to sort of kick us off into, you know, that feeling that we all share some horror stories and beautiful stories <laughs> in data, can you 
tell us an inspiring data story and a frustrating data story. Yeah. Which one do you want to start with? <laughs> I will leave that in your hands, but it could be fun to start with uh, the frustrating one and leave on a high note. Yeah. Actually, I could not name a job and have the same story at all of them, which is a combo of something really important broke and nobody knew until it was too late. Uh, because so much today around data orgs still feels like it's in this poll model, right? Go refresh the dashboard or go run the query instead of information being pushed to people. And I could tell you really a gajillion, an unquantifiable number of stories that are some combo of, we needed this number, we thought we had it, we thought the dashboard was working. It wasn't until someone refreshed it and we realized that the numbers didn't make sense. And I think part of the arc of my career has been thinking about how we address those sorts of things and how we catch them sooner. And I think the other side of that would actually be the inspiring story, which is how technology has enabled us to do more of that. And so I think about times at... Netlify, where we were proactively catching those things more and more often. And in the last couple months that I was there, it felt like the, hey, this thing is broken sort of comments were few and far in between. Those were now the exception instead of the rule, where earlier on in my career, it felt like 80% of the inbound messages to the data team were, this thing is broken. Oh my God, the horror story. Um, you're actually touching on something here that we didn't cover a lot in your backstory because you mentioned a few of the key milestones in, in how you got there, but you already had you know, a substantial data experience even before GitLab. Yes. In some ways, my claim to fame is that I discovered DBT before a lot of other people. So I joined DBT Slack in December 2016, uh, we were using DBT at my then job at Smile Direct Club. And it was interesting because I was person number like 50 in DBT Slack. And now there's 25,000. <laughs> and my career has really grown with the Slack community. And so my technical skills, my maturity, my thoughts as a leader, my mental model for how we build teams, build and grow data teams, the impact that the data team should have in the, on the business. All of that has grown as the community has grown. And so I've been so grateful to... It, it feels almost like I've been on a parallel journey with DBT and the DBT community that, that has been really special for me. That's incredible. That's actually a really beautiful story, like a growing up together story. Um, <laughs> When you first got into data, like how did that happen and why did that happen? Well, I started off by getting into tech. So I am an army wife. My husband is in the military here in the U.S. And military families in the U.S. move on average once every 2.9 years. But just by the nature of his career, we have moved a lot more than that. And so we were college sweethearts. We were pretty serious by the end of college. 
And I looked at him and I looked at the career ambitions I had. And I said, if I'm going to make these two things work together, I want to work remotely. What are the industries where that's going to be possible? I looked to startups and technology as the sector. So I joined a post-grad fellowship called Venture for America that takes recent college graduates and puts them in startups to work in non-traditionally startup cities. So not in San Francisco and New York and Boston, Mm. but in Baltimore and Cincinnati and New Orleans. And so I joined an early ed fintech company called Aliview that helps school districts manage and allocate their budgets. And when I was interviewing with them, I was mid-writing my senior thesis And my senior thesis was like a very technical analysis of uh, how certain behaviors were good or bad indicators of um, of voting patterns for women. And I was doing this analysis in R. I wasn't very good. I didn't know what a function was. And so I had all this code that was like copied and pasted where the only thing that changed was the variable. But they saw this like, very typical R output, a bunch of statistical analyses, and they knew they were getting this fresh out of college grad. And so they took a chance on me and I really appreciated it and was working remotely pretty much from the beginning with them. I was in that role for a while and learned a ton there, including learning how to work, which is like a thing you have to learn in your first job. And Totally. Navigating relationships and... Yeah, it was it was hard, but great. And so I joined as person number nine, watched the company grow to 30, which felt so big at the time. And then from there, joined that Smile Direct Club role where they were implementing... That, that was my first taste into data in the analytics sense. So the work I was doing at Aliview was very much around data implementation and integration. So helping our customers use our software and configuration. It's much more like ETL systems integration sort of role. And when I moved to Smile Direct Club, one of the first analyses I had to do was customer acquisition costs for uh, digital ads. Awesome. Right. Facebook, Instagram, tools like that. And so it, it was my first foray into analytics. And they were, this is now 2016, they were building what today we would call the modern data stack. So they <laughs> had Redshift and DBT and DBT Cloud, which at the time was called Center and Looker and, and Stitch. They were also using Stitch. So that was like the first foray into the modern data stack for me. And then it's really just kind of evolved from there. Mm-hmm. Incredible. Yeah, it's just, uh, I just wanted to touch on this because it's it's always such an interesting path that people go into data science. And for software engineering, for example, you typically study software engineering and then you become a software engineer. And that is just so far from being typically what people do for you know, the, the people that become great data leaders or analysts, um, that's certainly not the case necessarily. I mean, we're definitely seeing a growth in people studying data science, but, you know, most, you know, data leaders that I know, they didn't study that. No, and some of the best data folks that I've worked with don't have college degrees. Others have PhDs, right? And so I don't even think we need to think about education as like a formal path into data. 
I'm all for school. I loved my four years that I spent at college, but I don't think that that's a prerequisite to a career in data. And we shouldn't discount people who don't have it because so much of what we learn in school doesn't translate into real world application for data or we study something completely different that's not related to the work in data anyway. And so I don't even think that education should be a prerequisite for most data roles. Maybe for high-level, advanced, applied ML statistics, where we're talking about certain advanced technical subjects, but the vast majority of data roles, in my opinion, do not need uh, any sort of education requirement. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Okay, we're in the midst of your frustrating data story and sort of migrating into your inspiring data story. You talked about the silent failures, basically. Mm-hmm. Do you remember a moment? Do you remember like, oh my God, someone's just pinging me here and I don't know what's happening. Can you share that? Like literal stories. Yeah, so I was in the Target on Skybo Road in Fayetteville, North Carolina. It is three o'clock on a Sunday and my cell phone rings. Hey, we're prepping some numbers for the board meeting on Tuesday and the dashboard doesn't work. I need you to look at it. (laughs) And I have a cart full of groceries. (laughs) I'm like, it's going to be two hours before I get home. We can't wait that long. Holy. Like, it, it is what it is. <laughs> and so they, they did. They had to. But no, that, that sticks out to me as like, there's got to be a better way. And I don't think any of the dashboarding tools are particularly great about this. Like, if you want to know if a dashboard is broken, you basically have to run it on a schedule all of the time. And that has its own consequences, especially around compute resources. I think there are some tooling starting to get better, like integrating with your DBT project and and reading the code of your BI tool and things like column level lineage that make it easier for you to map the effects of changes upstream to, to changes in your BI tool, more of it being treated like code, interesting tools now that are like reading and extending the lineage DAG of your DBT project. I think there's there's a lot being done, but I haven't seen like a real solution yet. But I'm glad to see that a lot of really smart people are working on it. Yeah, everyone is solving their own problems. That's mm-hmm. what's happening. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, okay, this is a great, great story. And maybe just like a, a side note into that. I think one of my learnings also, and I'm curious to hear what your journey through that learning was, I talked about this a little bit also with Josh Wills. Um, He shared his perspective on this at Slack. Mm -hmm. Um, The learning for sort of appreciating data needs of executives. Like obviously it matters a lot, uh, but there are also a lot of other things going on and, and you as a data scientist, you get excited about a lot of things, but ultimately also the board or the marketing team has to report on just like, things that you consider maybe vanity metrics or they they have to tell a story around the data that, you know, fits the strategy of the company around fundraising or something like that. And I, I, I remember always this feeling like, you know, why am I always getting pinged about board meeting data the night before the board meeting? Like, why can't we plan ahead a little bit for this? And yeah, I just remember that feeling and not understanding 
why it had to be like that, but always responding to it. And we were always like on it and we always worked through the data and created a board deck narrative and all those things. Now I do. Um, and obviously by, with time, you start understanding like the different needs and purposes of the data uh, from those perspectives. And particularly now running a company myself, I totally understand that like preparing the board meeting you wait with it until you absolutely have to do it because you're just like, you want to wait for the last data to pop in. You want to finish all the stuff that you want to do. Like, do you remember a journey through that perspective of like how you collaborate with high up stakeholders, high up executives on, on these things and like your journey through and how your patience towards that changed? Was it always there? <laughs> it was always there. Because in a lot of ways, as an IC, I loved the opportunity to work with executives. Here I was, a lowly data analyst, what today we would call an analytics engineer, and getting the chance to sit in meetings with these folks with C-level titles. Like I loved that, and I always enjoyed doing that. I wanted to give, when I transitioned into a leadership role, I wanted to give my team members that opportunity to be in the room. And so... I think the frustration is really that people, one, don't anticipate that the board meeting is coming, so we know we're going to have some last-minute requests. But two, recognizing that when it comes to working with executives, the data team will always be a service organization, period. Mm-hmm. And coming from that perspective of when we talk about proactive data teams, when we talk about how we enable analytics for the rest of the company, we need to recognize that working with executives is an asterisk on the problem. The CMO is not going to want to slice and dice something in Looker, Transform, or whatever tool you're using, right? What they want to do is just ask someone and get an answer because that's what they do in every other part of the business. Why would data be any different? Hmm. And so coming to it from... This is a group of people that we are going to treat differently because the other part of thinking about it that way is like every team member's time is worth a certain amount of money to the business. And the CEO's time is more valuable than that data analyst. It is more worthwhile for the data analyst to sit with the CEO and answer their questions than it is for the CEO to try to answer their own questions in an Excel spreadsheet. And so when you come to it from that model, it's like, oh yeah, of course we're just going to have the data team do the analysis for them and help kind of as the questions evolve. The question is like, where do you change? I think it's everywhere else in the business. You need to think about enablement and helping people understand what metrics mean and where they can find information on their own and I don't really believe in self-serve analytics, but figuring out what some version of self-serve looks like at your organization, I think the best model that I have ever seen is one where the business defines a number of metrics and self-serve is around allowing people to discover those metrics and then slice and dice those metrics appropriately. And that was the model that we had at Netlify. We used Transform as a metrics repository people could slice and dice as they wanted and kind of expand from there. But everyone knew those were the numbers that we cared about as a business. It's also a great way to like standardize on the definition of things. So I have heard horror stories from friends who work at other companies where 
you know, the marketing team counts revenue as top of funnel revenue. So all the people and all the purchases, but the finance team subtracts refunds from revenue. So marketing and finance have different definitions of revenue. And that sort of story is just scary. Yeah. <laughs> For lack of a better term, you know, it's, it's a horror story, truly, when it comes to data. And so being able to standardize the whole business on this is the only definition of revenue that applies to this company just unlocks a lot. And then everyone in the organization knows this is where the definition of revenue and the number for revenue lives. And that's Mm -hmm. very different from the way most kind of traditional BI tools have handled it, which is that every dashboard might have a revenue tile on it. And when something changes or you want to apply to a filter, it doesn't apply everywhere. So now you might have incongruous definitions of revenue across the business. Yeah, exactly. This is a great story. I want to add to this, like with the standard definition of a metric, I also remember, you know, there's a classic issue of, you know, ad blockers and and things like that and the definition of a user. And then when you look at and try to consolidate the, the count of daily active users using other data sets, for example, logs, server logs, um, and I remember a moment at QuizUp where we discovered that, like, according to the server logs, we had, you know, I think up to like 10, 15% more daily active users. And obviously, the COO and the CEO, they were like, we have to fix that. Eventually, though, what we did is we agreed that we're going to use the other definition of daily active users because that's also what all of our other data uh, will be able to be sliced and diced on. Mm -hmm. And so we're aware that we might be underrepresenting our daily active users in total, but that is going to be our source of truth. That is how we count and represent our daily active users. Because if we start mixing in that other definition, then we'll start to see reports where like the Tuesday daily active users were 20,000 here, but 15,000 there. Why is that? Mm -hmm. Um, So I think this is a really great point. Exactly. And I I think that is a business decision, not a data decision, right? So as data people, we discover the problem, we understand the root cause, we make a recommendation, but at the end of the day, that is a business decision that our business partner or executive stakeholder needs to make. And so it really is a partnership through and through, not just understanding the business problem that you're trying to solve. In your case, what is daily active users, but also how are we going to use this data and how do we need to be able to slice and dice it? And it is just as important that we understand what are the technical limitations of the data we're working with. If we switch to server logs, we would not be able to slice and dice it in these ways. Exactly. Ah, oh, these conversations. Awesome. Um, And so... Moving over to uh, inspiring data stories. Probably one of the highlights of my time at Netlify was this insights feed that we built that uh, you talked about a little bit with Lori Voss. I think a lot about data teams that are stuck in this service trap model, this IT model, like question comes in, answer goes out. And this doesn't work for kind of the reasons we talked about before, right? Your headcount would need to grow exponentially and and you'll never get to all of the things. And people will always think of your team as like just answering other people's questions. And I knew and I know that data teams can be more impactful than that. And so probably been there for a couple months when what we started doing was carving out 
what we called insight time. So take an analysis you're working on, anything. It could be an analysis you're working on to answer someone's question. And just like turn it 10 degrees to the right or to the left. Like just look at something a little bit outside of the scope of the analysis and see what you can find. Sometimes you're going to find nothing, but sometimes you're going to find something interesting. And so it started off with just take half a day each week. That can seem intimidating to people. So make it two hours, time bound it. And the goal is just like, I'm going to go exploring in the data for a little bit for two hours to see what I can find. And so it started small with like looking at users slice and dice differently for the same analysis or Instead of looking at this page, let's look at this other page on the marketing site and performance there. And so we started off with this little block and I was more than happy to run interference for my team to buy them the space to be able to do this. So it started off with half a day and it took some time for people to get used to it. How do you right size an analysis to be able to be done in that window? How do you ask good questions? But Eventually, what we saw is people would do the analysis. We had like a template in, in GitHub that we used that would allow people to follow the journey if you were interested in. But then at the end of all that, we would push the information to the company. So remember earlier, I talked about how so much around data still feels like this pull model. And one of the things we did was start pushing this information out. So we did this in two ways. The first was we had a Slack channel called Internal Stats and Graphs, where we would kind of post a summary of the analysis. Here's the thing I found. Here's why it's interesting. And here's a chart that kind of illustrates the story, as well as a link to our Insight Feed post, which was essentially an internal blog where you could read more detail, more takeaways. What was the methodology here? And... What we found was very quickly, the number of inbound asks to the data team started going down because people were now getting information pushed to them, and that was shaping how they thought about the company. It was a really powerful thing to me because it was like very hard to convince people to carve out this time at first. And as we did it, you know, 12... 16 weeks in, people realized it was the most impactful work they were doing every week. And so they were carving out more and more time to do insights. I remember specifically this one meeting with the VP of product where he said, oh, the first thing I do every day is log into the insights feed. Oh, snap. That's incredible. Yeah, it was such a powerful way of changing this like push information where we are going to tell you this really wonderful thing we found. And um, I think most people on that team would tell you that it really changed how they thought about data organizations, so much so that Paige Berry, a staff data analyst at Netlify, she wrote a blog post for Locally Optimistic about how she shared her insights. And I remember after it was published, Tristan Handy linked to it from the analytics engineering roundup. And the comment he made was something to the fact of like, this seems so simple, but yet it is so powerful when you do it. 
And so many people don't do it. Yeah, it is really a strong, it's a, it's a tough challenge to push away all of the things that are being put on your desk or all of the different things that you have to do that you feel guilty about not doing um, to invest time in something like that. But I think what we found over time was that it became easier to prioritize because we saw the impact we were having with it. Exactly. So it's about building a flywheel, basically. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. convincing uh, some early early birds to, to start participating in this, doing then internal case studies, basically building a flywheel for why people understand that the value of doing this and then more and more people get sold on the concept. Mm -hmm. uh, this is the case for so many of the things in building data cultures, of course, just in building cultures in general. But yeah, I just, I'm so glad to hear, hear your version of the story because I really appreciate this perspective. And I think what's important here is the data team at Netlify was lucky that they had a data leader that had this insight um, and that had the drive to, to put this in place. Do you think an individual contributor, you know, anyone listening, an individual contributor that, you know, maybe is reporting somewhere to the CFO or is reporting to even just like a, a product leader or reporting to someone that is not an experienced data person, you know, what recommendations would you have for, for that person to start building that flywheel internally if they don't have the buy-in? It is certainly hard and I don't envy the challenge and I'll, I'll start there. But I think it is the easiest way to start is to just take the analysis you're doing and turn it on its side a little bit. And so if you think about the way a lot of analyses work, let's, let's use the marketing attribution example that I talked about earlier. So which channel is most effective on our customer acquisition at selling our widget? That's like the first question. And then what's the follow-on question is which ad on that channel is most effective? If we break it down by ad across all channels, is that question, it, you know, is it still the same? So anticipating the questions you're going to get could be one way of just going through, not just delivering on the question around which channel is most effective for, for customer acquisition costs, but what are all the ways they're going to want to slice and dice this? And then like, not just looking at customer acquisition costs, but the way to shift the analysis ever so slightly is, and which of those customers go on to have the highest lifetime value or have the highest initial spend amount on that first transaction. Like just finding something a little bit smaller or a little bit outside of the bounds of the analysis, that is a good way to start getting in the habit of people seeing you as the, not just the number fetcher, but the data expert in the room. Mm -hmm. And that's the perspective that you want in order for people to see you as strategic, not just a, like I said, number fetcher. Yeah. So I would, I would start there. And then the other piece is a, a lot of times I've heard questions from people in like distributed data teams where maybe they're across many departments or, uh, you know, every team has a data analyst, but there's no unifying data org. In which case my recommendation is to start with like a Slack channel 
You don't need to have a weekly meeting to sync, but a Slack channel where you're pushing information to each other. And I think it can fall into two buckets. The first would be something like the data reads channel that we had at Netlify, which was just like industry articles and interesting perspectives and technical tutorials and things that people were keeping a pulse on and found really interesting. But the other side of it was uh, the internal stats and graphs channel that we had at Netlify, which was out about pushing out things we found in the data. And you could do that. You could always start small. You don't have to start by sharing it with the whole company, right? You could start by sharing it with the other data analysts, even if they're not in your organization, or the other analytics engineers, even if if they're not in your organization. And Slack can be a great way to kind of share asynchronously and not make people feel like they have to hop on a call. Mm -hmm. Ah, these are, I think these are spot on action um, items to take in. So anyone listening, if you're struggling with getting and finding the time to, to make something even more cool than, than you're making currently today and build more leverage for yourself personally, Listen to Emily on this one, I would say. And I'll add too, there are all these stats on the internet about how much time employees waste on email and other work communication tools. Quit them for an hour, be a little bit more productive next Thursday and just get it done. Like block off two hours on your calendar and just take some analysis you're working on, spin it a little and see what happens. Maybe you'll find nothing, in which case it was an experiment. You tried it, it didn't work. But try it again the following week and try it again the following week and try it again the following week. And I think you'll find that over time, it will start to pay off in dividends. Yeah, one great aspect onto this to keep in mind also, there's a great tweet from TJ uh, Murphy that talked about the difference between software engineering and data science and how known the output will be based on the effort that you put in. So he's talking about that software engineering has high variance in the amount of effort it takes to get out a relatively fixed output. But while data science has a high variance both for the input and or sort of the effort and the output. So just be prepared for that. Like some of these moments that you take will be you know, you won't get much out of them, but Mm -hmm. stay with it, I guess. (laughs) And no results are interesting, right? So I I think there's this worry that if it's not like a flashy takeaway, it's not a takeaway, but people who land on the green version of the homepage or don't convert more often than the blue version, like that is also an interesting takeaway <laughs> and it, yeah. it's not flashy. It's, it would be much more interesting to say the green page is twice as likely to get someone to convert or whatever it might be. But null results are also important because they help shape the way we think of the business. Yeah. That's a really great insight. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much, Emily, uh, both for the inspiring data stories uh, and the frustrating data stories and the intermediate tangents that we went on, which we'll now use as input into our next step of the conversation. So I'd love to get some thoughts on how you see the industry has changed. And, you know, sometimes it's fun to think about that in like a two-year scope Sometimes it's fun to think about it in a, in a longer scope. So over to you. What do you think? How, how, is, how has the industry changed? 
a lot of people still think of data teams as number fetchers for others. And it's not until you work at a place where the data team is strategic that people change their mind. I think it is nearly impossible to change a large organization's mindset around the data team as something other than IT, if not from the top. So all these organizations where people are are struggling in service models or in IT, like ask for data, get sent a file for you to do analysis in Excel world. I don't know how you change those, but we're seeing more and more strategic data organizations pop up. And I look forward to that trend continuing. That is really great insight, actually. I love that you highlighted that. Most of the time when I ask this question, I, I get a lot about tools and infrastructure and pipelines and, uh, and plumbing and how, how that's all changed. But this is a really great perspective on that. And I think one thing that speaks to this is when I started AVO, a lot of people were uh, skeptical of us targeting data as a buyer mm. um, because they didn't have budget typically, and they were in mm-hmm. the service org, and they like mm-hmm. they were a cost center of the organization. Mm-hmm. But that has certainly changed so so much just over the course of Allo's lifespan, which is since two thousand early two thousand eighteen. If you look at the modern data stack in the tools that companies use to get started, you just to to get rocking and rolling with data, right? You've got an EL provider, you've got a data warehouse, you've got some sort of BI, you've probably got some scheduler. And so it takes four or five tools just to go from like zero to a dashboard. (laughs) And what I think is there's companies are willing to invest because they hear and they see the promise of data. But then for companies to continue to invest, what they're looking for is data teams to move the needle. And the way for data teams to have the budget and be able to buy the tooling that they need and get the things that they need to be effective, it is certainly one where they need to be moving the numbers in a myriad of ways, whether it's working closely with growth or helping distribute insights across the business, whatever the case might be, I think those are the things that allow data teams to have the budget and the headcount that they need to be successful and impactful to the organization. Mm-hmm. Ah, this is this is such an inter- interesting conversation. I think it could just be a good segue into talking a little bit about uh, and probably spending the majority of the rest of the time talking about data cultures and how to build them. I want to kick it off by just talking about data trust. I think, you know, that often sparks so many interesting conversations. It's an endlessly common phrase. I don't trust this data. What's your perspective on why that is and and how to solve that? The data seems so separate from the consumer of it in a lot of ways. And I think that is the problem. It's interesting that you mentioned earlier that usually people talk about the tech and the tooling and how all those things have changed. But I think those are not that interesting of problems. I mean, it's great. I appreciate the modern data stack. My career is thriving because of it. But the much harder problems to solve are not 
how do I move data from Salesforce into Snowflake? The much harder problem is how do I get buy-in across the organization about how we're going to think about metrics? And what it comes down to is really building a culture of trust and communication throughout the organization. And what I've seen be most effective is thinking of stakeholders as business partners. And at Netlify, the way we implemented this was that a phrase that I actually stole from Eric Bernhardson, a a recent podcast guest of yours, uh, where data teams should be centrally reporting, but locally prioritized. And what that means is you report to a manager who understands your job. You have a a boss who can help you on career laddering and can help you understand what the right milestones are, can help you navigate a tricky project. They can talk to you about the soft and the technical side of data. But then you also are working very closely with this stakeholder in the part of the business who has the pain point that you're looking to help them solve. And so you're not supporting them right? This isn't like you just answering the question for them. It is about a business partnership where you are also a part of that finance or product or growth team. You're in their meetings. You understand what they're working on. And so you eventually get to a place where you get to anticipate the problems and the questions that they're seeing. And that partnership is what sparks the impact that these groups can have together, right? The data person who just produces a one-off analysis and throws it over the fence and sends it to the head of finance, and the head of the finance is like, I don't trust this data. These numbers don't make sense. Well, the data person, if the numbers don't pass the sniff test, the data person would have caught that if they had the context from finance, right? And so starting with relationships first, number second, allows us to ensure that we're building on something much more important than data. It allows us to understand not just, oh, you know, what should the SQL query look like? Because I'm going to write it for you because you just don't know how to write SQL. It's instead a, what is the problem you're trying to solve? And how can I help use my skills to help you solve your problem? Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. I couldn't agree more with the relationship building um, it's one of the first things I always recommend to people uh, as they're starting out in a new data role. And it's one of the things that I, you know, I, I mentioned it when you were talking about just learning how to work. <laughs> My first professional work role related to what I studied, you know, you know, excluding things that you did with when you're uh, you know, a kid or something, wasn't data. And I think a lot of that like a lot of the, the skills, I mean, I learned how to program in that role, um, even though you know, I would probably never qualify as a software engineer anywhere, but that's where I learned that. And I learned how to, you know, work with data sets. But I think my biggest learning was really like, and learning the hard way, how really important it is to really build relationships with the stakeholders. Awesome. Uh, incredible. Thank you so much for that insight. Um, I love that we're talking more about culture than tools. I agree with you that those are the more interesting parts of this. The hard problem is not piping data. It's how to build buy-in and, and, and sort of desire and curiosity around data across the organization. Yeah. And like I said earlier, your 
data is a reflection of your process. And you get a culture and, and people buy into the process. And then the good data quality is a result of that. But that starts with the relationships. And so if we always try to fix the data afterwards, we're going to be like a dog chasing our tail. Yes. Wow. I, I just, I couldn't agree with this more. And I think that that's one of the most impactful things you can do also. I think product analytics data is, is one of the most complex sets of data that you can work with because it is ever-changing. It's raw analytics event structures that are ever-changing. It changes every time you release a product. Mm-hmm. You have a new goal that you have to measure the success of, so you have a new type of metric. Um, you know, you know, you're always looking at the high-level KPIs, of course, but you then have you know granularity in those metrics that are some sort of indicators and inputs into your high-level metrics. So you're always creating new metrics for your product releases, and you're always creating new data structures for your product releases. And I think the most impactful thing that I've seen happen at, at organizations for data quality is when the product engineers actually start caring about the analytics data and mm-hmm. uh, you know measuring and understanding the impact of the products that they release. That's when you start seeing like good quality data get created for every single product release and they care about it. I'd be curious, do you see that start mostly with growth engineers? So I would say not necessarily, but I think they are often in the role that works the closest with and the tightest relationship with the, uh, a data analyst and a product manager. Mm-hmm. Um, they're on a team that specifically has like really strong growth metrics. And so I think um, Eric Bernhardson put this really nicely uh, in my interview with him where he was saying, uh, and highlighting that when you have to sync across teams, that takes weeks. When you have to sync within teams across individuals, it takes days. When you have to sync within a single individual, that's you know a, a dream state. Um, and Josh Wills also highlighted that a little bit on my interview with him, where he was saying the biggest data quality that he saw and like the biggest leverage for data was always when the consumer and the producer of the data were the same person, which was the case for things like the messaging team at Slack or things like that. Uh, But for, I think, growth teams, I think the case where that could support your theory about like growth engineers might be the first engineers to really get this thing. I think it's, it's because they work in that sort of second tier that Eric was referring to. They're in a single team where they like have a really shared strategy uh, with the product manager and probably there's an analyst there. Uh, and so they're super close to the data. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that might be the reason why, why they could be a good candidate. Is that what you see? Yeah, it, I think too, there's like this, a lot of times it feels like that's the first time you're trying to tie individual interactions into chained events, like into sequential interactions, right? And what I mean by that is the whole product org will have DAUs and MAUs, right? The the whole product org will care about how many people have accounts and how many new signups. But being able to say, this user who we 
gave us special treatment to, then went on to convert and pay us more money than this user who was in the control. Like That's where getting your product analytics right is so much more important and so much more impactful. And it feels like the orgs need a why before they invest in product analytics. And I have seen too many growth functions spin their wheels trying to get off the ground where they're like, we're going to run an experiment. And then they realize they don't have any of the instrumentation in place they need to be able to run that experiment. Mm -hmm. And so it's a chicken and egg problem where then you decide we're going to build this airplane while we're flying it and just continuously add that. And, And in my experience, that seems driven by growth engineers, but every company's got their own story. I really like the way you framed it though around where the producers and the consumers of data are the same. Because I think that is what maps onto that growth engineer story is that they are looking to see and measure the impact of whatever they're shipping. They feel as accountable to it as the product manager. And so that's why they have this moment of epiphany where they realize the value of product analytics, it's because now they can think about their work and measure the impact of that work in a new way. Yeah, uh, I, I couldn't agree more. Because another thing is like, okay, as a data person, you are asked to answer the question, what was the impact of this product change? And early in a maturity stage of an organization, then when you get that question, you might not have had any input or knowledge even that that thing was actually going to be released. So you get that question when things are out the door already and you get a ping from the CEO or something and you're like, how did that go? And you're like, how did what go? What? <laughs> um, and so I think that's a super interesting thing. And like the next step in that is just like try to inject yourself a little bit earlier in the process. And then you start to think about experimentation and, you know, how can I quantitatively say that this actually is better than, than whatever was before? What I really enjoyed doing at QuizUp, and we did this in the same capacity as you built with that, built the inside time where we built like the flywheel around this. So we started off with, you know, an engineer that was data curious already a little bit, at least, you know, he, he was sometimes sending me charts and asking questions and things like that. And then sort of pulling that person into thinking about preparing the product release and and asking that person, that engineer, the question, what do you think is going to be the success uh, like definition? Like, what is the goal here? How would we measure, like, measure the success of this? If we looked at a chart and it would, you know, go down or up by this much, would you say that this was a success or a failure? Would you be able and feel comfortable to say that? And then sometimes they would say, No, because it could have been because of a seasonality or it could have been because of a marketing campaign or it could have been because of various different things. And that's when they would actually come up with like, why don't we actually release this as an AP test? And sort of getting that initiative and thinking from the engineer, I think, was uh, one of the most impactful things that we did at QuizUp to actually start that experimentation culture as a part of the DNA. Mm -hmm. Because... Otherwise, it's always sort of someone begging the developer to actually build two versions of their code base (laughs) um, and maintain two versions of a feature for a while Mm -hmm. when they don't really necessarily, you know, 
have desire or a reason to do that. So I think that was really impactful. Can you talk a little bit about this and your perspective on this? Yeah. What you said to me was we went and we found our business partner, right? Whether you start with finding an engineer or a product manager or whomever it might be, a marketer who's running experiments on the marketing site, like what it comes down to is finding someone who's as invested in the results as the data person is. Uh, oftentimes, they're more invested. They just don't have the ability to write the queries themselves. And finding that person who can be your partner. And I, I use that word very specifically because too often, even where data people maybe aren't thought of as just number fetchers, they still just like deliver numbers, right? Here is the results of that analysis you asked. And what we need to be doing is delivering recommendations. And partners are open to recommendations, whereas stakeholders more often are just looking for you to deliver analyses or numbers. Yeah, I like that perspective. I'm going to quote you on that. Yeah. <laughs> finding finding that partner and finding the early candidate for mm-hmm. starting to build your flywheels for whatever culture you're trying to build, I think is super important. Mm-hmm. I remember telling someone once, you know, a conversation similar to this, pick one part of the business, serve them really well, make sure they're a partner, blah, blah, blah. And he replied by telling me a horror story where he had done exactly that. They were starting to gain some traction. The VP of product was on his side. And then the VP of product switched jobs and he felt like he had to go back to square zero. And, you know, sometimes it happens. It was rough. But it's still, I think, the most effective way to go about it. It's certainly not foolproof. And that's why I mentioned the story. But it is much better than trying to do a bunch of things mediocrely is to do one thing or few things very well. Mm-hmm. Ah, oh, the philosophy of data cultures. Okay, awesome. Um, I mean, currently you are a data strategist. So, you know, I'll leave it up to you for whether the org structure there is interesting, but Ultimately, I think, you know, probably your experience with Netlify and and GitLab and all of the data-centric roles within product organizations that you've been in, I would love to hear your thoughts on sort of org structures, data-wise, what you've seen, how data works with product and engineering. We've already touched a lot on this, but, you know, integrated with your product teams or separate and things like that. All of the above. Is that a good answer? (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a classic answer. Yeah. You know, every business is different. And so I have some rules about how I like to think about it, but that doesn't mean that there's not an exception. And so I I start with that caveat. Right now, uh, my role at Amplify, I get to work with multiple organizations, see how they're thinking about data. And I see different companies structuring their data orgs in different ways. But what I keep coming back to and the model that seems most effective and most empowering is still that centrally reporting, locally prioritized, where you report into the data org. Now, does the data org report into finance or product or ops or something else? Depends a lot on your business. How 
naturally data-driven is your executive team or where are your biggest stakeholders and who has the most questions and where is the funding and what kind of a business are you, right? A SaaS company, which is where I've spent the bulk of my career, has a very different org structure than like a direct-to-consumer e-commerce company. And so understanding the nuances of your business are important when you think about like where the data organization should live across the company. But I also suggest that people understand a little bit around like very standard accounting practices and what it means to be an R&D versus uh, a part of the sales org versus GNA and and what the implications of those are and how mm. like industry benchmarks might affect the funding and headcount that your team does or doesn't get. If I had to make a recommendation for a SaaS data team, my recommendation is that they report into the engineering organization. All of the data team members report into the data organization. And then folks have work streams or business partners across the part of the business where they're going to be spending 60 to 80% of their time. Yeah. Um, and then build the relationships for the other functions of the organization um, from there, basically. Mm -hmm. I think this is a journey, like you said, all of the above. I think this is a journey that most organizations go through. Like they switch between these data structures, the team structures throughout the company lifecycle. Mm -hmm. It depends on the size of the organization. And then you scale to the next level and then you scale to the next level. Absolutely. There's also something about maturity there, where when I joined Netlify, we were starting a data team from essentially scratch. And so the first few hires were all analytics engineers. Uh, we had one data engineer, a couple of analytics engineers. And then as our data stack became more mature, it was possible to do more analysis without making changes to our core DBT models, then we were willing to branch into data analysts. And so the folks who ended up being locally prioritized to product were data analysts. Whereas the, the person who was locally prioritized to finance was an analytics engineer. Those are super different roles, but they were a reflection of different needs of the business at the point in time when they were hired and the different needs of those functions. Right? We could not have brought in and successfully created opportunity for those two data analysts if we didn't already have an analytics engineer who had spent so much time building out our core product models. Yeah, I think this is uh, the perfect segue into what I knew I wanted to talk to you about on this episode, um, which we just have to touch on. I think we have some shared visions on titles and roles you gave a fantastic talk at Coalesce, uh, DBT's Coalesce last December. Uh, thank you for shouting that out. And the title of the talk was Down with Data Science. Um, and where you were sort of arguing for, uh, you know, whether that title is helpful at all, basically. And I, I have strong opinions there as well. So, but I want to just maybe give you the word quickly to sort of, can you shed some light on that thought down with data science? So there's two parts to this. The first is what kind of work are most data teams doing, right? And when we think about science, the definition of science, it really comes to 
um, experimentation and proving out hypotheses. And sometimes that's what data teams do, but it's not the only thing that data teams do. And so a job title that reflects like a teeny slice of your job probably isn't the best job title, right? So that's number one. Number two is we need to make sure that our titles are allowing for people to have careers in data. And not just careers in data like, you know, 20 years of having the word data in your job title, but careers in strategic data teams that are going to allow them to be impactful. And right now what we're seeing is, especially for people who came to the modern data stack early, you know, they're five or six years in and they're like, okay, now what do I do next? Because they've tapped out. There's no real roles out there for principal analytics engineer or a principal data analyst or a staff data analyst. So there's there's no career track. So we are taking our best people, these people who are incredibly impactful to our business, and they're moving into finance and operations and all of these other things. And we cannot have successful 20-year careers if we don't create opportunities for people to have successful 20-year careers, right? And so starting with strong job titles can allow for strong career opportunities and kind of creating that vision for data longer term. And part of where this came from was I was at GitLab in that point in a startup's life where people don't love to talk about it, but you have to bring in the adults who have done it before. Like you, you've stretched your people who you took a chance on long enough and, it, and it's about time. So we brought in this senior director of data who had a ton of experience and the data team very quickly, what he did was what a lot of people do is he ran that playbook that he had run in his previous role building a data team that was very much around this IT service model of we're going to build our data platform and you can have your data analysts and lots of other parts of the org. We're not going to be responsible for centralizing kind of things. Mm. And I I look at that and I'm like, that is not the career I want. I don't want to reach that VP level role and think to myself that, the data team now has to be in an IT service model because that's the only thing that I've ever seen. And so how do we take these strategic data orgs, which were growing in these early stage companies that we're seeing impact the business, and how do we scale that? And what do we do to take our best data people and help them scale their careers to help us build these strategic data orgs at the next level of a company? Mm-hmm. Okay, so I mean, there's a lot to unpack here. And like, you know, these are great questions. You know, that's the starting question. So, uh, and obviously, like, ideally, we can we can get some answers here. But I want to just highlight what you're saying here with the career trajectory of a data role. It sort of brings us full circle to two areas that we've been covering on the episode um, so far. It's the first reference really is too early in the episode when we were talking about how do you find people for data roles? Um, and typically, you have to hunt for junior people that are hungry, and it's really difficult to estimate whether they are the right fit because they have mm-hmm. little to no experience already. Um, and so you have to make a bet based on other aspects. Because when you've done 
a data role. And when you've built a data culture uh, from scratch or early or been a part of that journey once or twice, you want something else next. Uh, and that's mm-hmm. such a good highlight. Like those folks are moving into other areas. A lot of people moving into maybe product or growth, I would say also. Mm-hmm. And then I think the other full circle that's happening here is the reference that you made to like, there are a lot of people building incredible data tools right now. And I think that's, you know, this is probably input into that. Like the, their option was, you know, do the same thing again at another company or, or do something with really high leverage and build a product to solve a problem at scale for many, many, many organizations, mm-hmm. which is exactly what, what, what we did at Avo. <laughs> I just wanted to highlight that. Like, yeah. You know, I raised my hand here because when we talked about my own career story, I told you about the year I spent in an operations role, right? Exactly. Where data was my hammer, but it was not what I did day in and day out. And I think that is the thing that really helped me connect the dots in my own head was that I was gaining traction in my career and I saw how sidestepping allowed me to be impactful to the business and so when I moved back into data, I built a team where it wasn't a sidestep to impact the business. It was your job to impact the business. Mm-hmm. And now at, at Amplify, I'm doing this with multiple teams and we're seeing similar effects where being proactive, pushing out insights, making sure you're seen as a partnership, having work streams that people are focused on centrally reporting but locally prioritized is the kinds of things that are moving the needle on how people are building data teams. But then the question remains like, so what next? Not just for me, but for all of these other data leaders, how do we allow people to continue to grow? And I look at a bunch of my fellow data peers and I see them move into product like you're talking about, especially at data tools companies. Mm-hmm. So many people moving into product management at data tools companies. And on the one hand, I'm really excited because yes, please take all of the frustrations that we have had as data professionals and go fix the tooling for goodness sake, right? But the other side of that is also a, a sense of sadness that the reality in place is that there is no places for people to really grow. Like you can go run the playbook again, and maybe that's interesting one or two times, but then what? And and some people will never want to grow. Some people don't want to be VP of data, and that's totally cool. So we need to create the same sort of opportunities that we've had for software engineers to go this principal technical track for data folks at all levels, right? And uh, there's that great post by Ben Stansel where he talks about the chief analytics officer as your IC data analyst who's working for the executives. And I said earlier that when you talk about data with executives, you need to just accept that it's a service model, right? And so does that mean that every data team should have a chief analytics officer who's just focused on surfacing the executives? Maybe. Maybe that is the career ladder that we lay out for everyone. I I don't know that your director of data is going to get the clout in your organization to uh, give away a C-level title like that. But (laughs) it is certainly something we have to think about when we think about not just five, six-year careers in the modern data stack, but 10, 15, and 20. Oh, this is so interesting. Um, A lot to unpack there, but I, I wanted to at least touch on this one thing that you mentioned, like 
okay, you had the opportunity to be impactful as uh, chief of staff. And now when you joined Netlify, um, you were not going to do that sort of uh, by, you know, tangentially, you're actually going to build a team that was in, impactful. When you joined Netlify, what was the role positioned like? How big was the organization when you joined? Were you headhunted directly by like Chris and the founders or, you know, how, how did that happen? And and how much of this did you position up front versus build it, you know, uh, as you went? Because it sounds like you already had a strong opinion that you wanted to do this this way even before you joined the role. So I uh, was recruited to Netlify by the former VP of Engineering, Dahlia Havens, who's an incredible leader, who I had the honor and pleasure of working with at GitLab as well. And so in a lot of ways, I went to Netlify to work for and with her. Uh, And so I was reporting into her, and my mandate was to lead data. And I I was starting from scratch-ish, and by that, uh, Netlify had hired a PhD who was very good at like very complex statistics, but did not know anything about the modern data stack. And so mm-hmm. all of their pipelines getting data out of systems were custom built and they would break a lot. And so there wasn't a lot of net new work because they were maintaining lots of things. And there were things written in Scala and R and nobody peer-reviewed anything. And so Mm. I had opinions on how we were going to do things, but I also did what I would recommend to any leader, which is you do nothing for the first 90 days, right? When you come into, maybe, maybe that's like 60 in startup land or 35, but you have to come into a job and just like take in what's going on. And there is no amount of context you get during the interview process that tells you what the right answers are. Like, you just have to start and then start drawing conclusions. And, you know, there's the great book called The First 90 Days about starting your new job. But when people come in and they say, this is what we're going to do, we're going to implement this data stack, and and we're going to change these things, that's actually a huge flag to me. Because it means that they're not listening to the context, and they're not forming the partnerships they need to draw the conclusions. But... At the same time, you can have an understanding of your mandate, you can have a vision for the team, but knowing that you're going to have to figure out what the context you're operating in and how to apply the things you you understand about the role to uh, that specific context, I think are important. Yeah. That's a really great observation. Do nothing for the first 90 days. Um, but it sounds like you had really strong buy-in and here comes again the power of relationship building. Mm-hmm. You had previously built a relationship with this person, so there was trust there, mutual trust for you to do your thing. And The thing that I'll add there, too, is that I think of interviewing like dating. So it's just as important that Netlify find the right data leader for them as it was that I find the right role for me. And so I asked for more interviews in the process because I wanted to talk to more people. I wanted to get Mm -hmm. a better understanding. I wanted to understand more about the culture. And so I think it's really important to come into it from that perspective as well. That like, you are not the only person interviewing here. You should also make the company interview for you. 
Yeah, I totally agree with that. We also have that as a part of the um, AVO hiring process. So there is a there's a mm-hmm. definitely room for reverse interviewing. I think that's really important. And also as someone that is hiring, you you do learn a lot also from reverse interviews because you learn a lot from questions that people ask. Absolutely. I want to just throw this in here. I mean, you reference data professionals a lot. And I shared this with you before today's session. Um, we at Avo, we're currently recruiting for a role that would in many companies be called developer relations. Mm-hmm. But in our case, it's not relationship building with you know product engineers or you know, software engineers or developers in that sense. And developers, okay, yeah, we could understand or, or say that data people, they're developing something. They are, maybe they're developers. And for example, DBT has a role referring to developer relations while most of their you know, relations are built with data professionals, analytics engineers, data engineers, data analysts, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this was something that, and I threw this literally out to Twitter, like, what, what should we call this? Like, should we call it community relations building? Should we call it, because there is no single reference to a role that is as encompassing as developer. Mm-hmm. Do you have a hot take there? Like, what should we replace data science with? <laughs> I will say I don't envy your position. Uh, <laughs> this is a hard problem. And I think part of it is you're going to post a job and hopefully find your candidate. But what I would recommend is being open to helping the candidate tell you what the right title for the job is. Mm. And what I mean by that is like, maybe they want to be analytics engineer relations or product business partner relations or whatever it might be. It is a catch-22 where the title attracts the candidate. And I think you make up for it by having a really strong responsibilities and requirements section and outlining what the role is and uh, doing a lot of great job sourcing. Like I, I think the best way to find the strong candidates is to go find them instead of waiting for them to come to you. But then also being open to asking them what's a better way to articulate the value prop of this role through your job title. But that all being said, it is a hard problem. And I don't think there's a clear answer. But my guess is in the next short-term future, we're going to see some industry standardization on what a good title for DevRel and data looks like. That's interesting. Yeah. So specifically around DevRel and data. Yeah. That's, I think that's really interesting. I am excited about that. And I mean, the takeaway basically of the title talk down with data science uh, was, or one of them, you know, you, you talked about two really important sort of reasons why title, titles matter early here in this session. T- the title ideally represents what you do. So it's helpful for you to understand what, what actually is your role. And then the other one is, you know, titles should help you develop your career. But I think um, what you highlighted also in the session is data science is too broad and we need to be more specific about the titles instead of using a generic data science title. Yeah, it's too unspecific and unmeaningful. Like I would interview candidates with the data scientist job title. And the first question is like, so what did you do? Like, were you writing algorithms or were you writing SQL queries? Mm -hmm. And 
never did I ever get pushback on that question because all of them would tell you, yeah, I know my title's ambiguous. And so like the blog post that I point to is that blog post from Lyft where they're like, oh, we're rebranding data analysts to data scientists because branding, like it is such a, a sad thing to me that we would choose that branding and the ambiguity that comes with it in favor of the stronger careers and the stronger communication that comes from a clearer, more direct title. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, this relates a little bit to a conversation that I had with Ward Church about the the caste system also of data titles is really interesting. Mm-hmm. But we are approaching an end here. I definitely want to end by asking you for recommendations for what is the first thing teams should do to get their analytics right and what is one thing you wish more people knew about data and product. But before we do, I would also love as like a as an input into the sort of locally prioritized centrally reporting. Can we talk a little bit about just because we talked a lot about product analytics earlier and experimentation and you had shared some thoughts on like what just should that process look like? Uh, who should be involved in the planning process for feature releases? Now we're getting in the nitty gritty. So we're not talking about mm-hmm. high level. We're talking about nitty gritties, planning it, implementing it, queuing it, prioritizing feature work based on data and all that stuff. So I think what it really comes down to is starting with that partnership relationship. And so people never love to talk about ratios, but we should think about it in terms of ratios. If the right ratio for your organization is half a data analyst per product manager, depending on the domain and and the demands you put on them, then that's it. But you need to make sure that that product manager and data person, whether it's a data analyst, an analytics engineer, or something else, is someone who is working very closely at every step along the way to make sure you are capturing telemetry as part of every release and that there's some standardization across the organization. And so that has to be a two-way street because data cannot just ask for those things. It's almost like then there'll be a nag to the product org and product can't just ask and then say the numbers don't look right. They need to feel ownership over how those numbers are getting produced. And I think it's not just data and product, but it's also like engineering. We can't just build specs for engineers and expect them to go implement it. Mm -hmm. We also need to make sure, like we were talking about earlier, they understand the impact of that and why those are important and how we can get them in on this partnership as well. And so it really comes down to feeling that relationship and iterating until the process feels right for the both of you. Yeah, I love that. Thanks. Um, Let's start wrapping up. What do you think is the first thing teams should do to get their analytics right? If you're starting from scratch, I always think a, a talk I gave at the Modern Data Stack Conference in 2021. And uh, I talk about the five types of work that your data team does. And operational analytics is always the one I think can unlock the most because that's how you take data that only the data team has, and you 
spread it throughout your organization in the tooling that people are most comfortable with. Mm-hmm. And so putting product data in Salesforce where the account managers and the customer success people can play with it and feel empowered with it in a new way or giving marketers new pieces of product data that they can trigger analytics on or trigger messaging and campaigns and things like that. Mm -hmm. Giving support information about the last email that the person opened and just this cross-pollination of information that today the data team has, but the rest of the organization doesn't have. That is a real way for people to feel the impact of data in their day-to-day work. Awesome. I think that's a really good recommendation also because it starts immediately building those relationship and buy-in mm-hmm. instead of getting you sold as a, an ally to those other teams. And what is one thing you wish more people knew about data and product or, or just data in general? It's hard, but so fun. <laughs> Maybe everyone knows that, but I love it. You know, I... I joked for a long time that data was both my job and my hobby. And then I had a kid and I was like, ha no more time for hobbies. <laughs> but I think I look at communities like Locally Optimistic, which is a, a community of data professionals where I'm, I'm one of the admins. And like, that is a labor of love if there ever was one. All of the admins are people who just like really like data And they don't log off at 5 p.m. and turn their brains off. They are thinking about how do we build better careers and how do we make our tooling better and and what's the next steps and looking forward. And so if I only had one thing to say, it's that data is hard, but so fun. I love that takeaway. Let's have that, that be the last words of this episode. Emily, thank you so much for joining us on The Right Track. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to The Right Track. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Keep the conversation going with us in The Right Track community. Join us on therighttrack.avo.app. You can learn more about Avo at avo.app. And please follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter via AvoHQ.